This is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching here at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle or for anyone looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is John chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. It's the basis for the sermon here at First Free Methodist Church on Easter Sunday, April 9, 2023. It's the final message in our series called Lost and Found, about how we find hope at the moments in which we feel most lost. Before we begin getting into what this passage is uh, communicating to us, let's hear the passage as a whole unit. This is John chapter 20, verses 1 to 18, and I'm reading from the 2020 version of the New American Standard Bible. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already removed from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken the Lord from the tomb and we do not know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple left and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. He stooped to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there. However, he did not go in. So Simon Peter also came following him, and he entered the tomb, and he looked at the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but folded up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb also entered then, and he saw and believed. For they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own home. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. So as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, Why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have put him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and yet she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am according, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and announced all this to the disciples. I have seen the Lord and that he has said these things to her. This story breaks itself really into three different parts or three different episodes to the story. The first one, when Mary arrives at the tomb, then when Peter and his companion, who we believe to be John, arrive at the tomb, and then finally this interchange that happens between uh, the angels and Mary and then again between Jesus and Mary. So let's look at each of these episodes one at a time. As we look at Mary's arrival at the tomb, we read about it in verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 20. It's the first day of the week. It's Sunday on the Jewish calendar, and Jesus has been in the tomb for three days. 
Friday, because he was put into the tomb before sunset on Friday, that counts as Friday, in the tomb all day Saturday, and then in the tomb even on Sunday morning, which actually began Saturday at sunset. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb to finish the embalming process after the Sabbath on Saturday is over. Other Gospels say that there were other women who came as well, but John, in his version of the Gospel, mentions only her. Now, the stone had already been moved by the time she arrived. Now, this was expected, since tombs often kept multiple bodies in them. So, stones were not designed to be sealed permanently. They were designed to be opened and closed, much like a a crypt might be today in a cemetery. They were designed to be open and closed, but she had planned for it to be open. And so, when she saw that it had been opened without looking inside or without getting any recognition about what's gone on, it says that she ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Again, this other disciple is presumably John. This is a feature throughout John's gospel that that oftentimes John, who was one of the 12 disciples, fails to mention himself by name in his own gospel. And so he often will refer to himself in somewhat anonymous terms as here with the other disciple. Now, Mary Magdalene tells Peter and the other disciple that they have taken him. That's her first statement. The second one is, is I don't know where they've put him. Now, she's not entered the tomb, but she knows he's not there. In this day, in the Roman Empire, especially grave robbing was common. And it wasn't too long after this episode of Jesus's resurrection that Emperor Claudius uh, uh, made it illegal for anyone to rob a grave and that they would be pretty severely punished if they were to do so. And so the fact that Emperor Claudius would even have a law prohibiting grave robbing with some strict penalties indicates to us that uh, people robbing graves was not that uncommon. So when Mary says they have taken him and I don't know where they've put him, she's assuming that his body's been stolen. But yet there's something off because John, in his description, continues to mention grave cloths or grave clothes. And we'll get to those in just a moment. But for now, let's focus on the first key passageway in this text for us. Resurrection creates natural witnesses. What's great about this story is that Mary Magdalene becomes the first witness to the resurrection and the first one to proclaim it. And so the problem here is is that in the ancient world, the testimony of a woman alone was not to be believed. A woman by herself was not allowed to give testimony in a tribunal or a court. She was considered to be unreliable in her eyewitness story. In, In such a misogynistic world, as this first century, her witness of the resurrection would count for little. She becomes a very unlikely witness to the resurrection, in the same way that the the proclamation of Jesus' birth was proclaimed to shepherds, who are also regarded as being unreliable and somewhat shady characters who couldn't give testimony in tribunals or in courts. So Mary now has become another unlikely witness. So she's in league with good company, shepherds, people healed by Jesus, all of these individuals who are considered to be unreliable, yet they're the ones who are given the message to carry. The reality of resurrection here is not a fantasy. It is the essential Christian gospel. It's the primary thing that we bear witness to as followers of Jesus, not just his death. 
in verse 3, Peter and this other disciple arrive at the tomb. Now, Peter and this unnamed disciple, who we presume to be John, begin their journey to the tomb, but the unnamed disciple outruns Peter. So uh, this one who ran ahead, John, presumably, stops at the tomb when he arrives and does not go in. But Peter, when he's trailing behind, he rushes into the tomb. There's a lot of running in John's version of this story and in other places in John. Uh, John is uh, much more, it's much more important for John to, to, to emphasize the urgency of these episodes and the quickness and the importance of them rather than the, the retaining of Jewish modesty that one would often know about from Jewish culture that you know, grown men and women do not run in this world. And there's lots of running here. So what John is trying to help his readers understand that this is urgent, this is pressing, this is important. Now, it says that they, Peter and John went in, eventually went into the tomb, and John eventually entered as well, the other disciple, and they see the linen wrappings of Jesus. Now, these would have been, had Jesus' body been in the tomb, these would have been removed by Mary and the others, and they would have embalmed the skin of Jesus, and then they would have embalmed, they would have uh, anointed or rubbed uh, ointments into the the cloth itself and would wrap his body to somewhat preserve it. And then a face cloth was oftentimes placed over the face. But these grave clothes or grave cloths become very significant in the story. John mentions them several times because the covering for Jesus's face was folded up. See, if Jesus's body had been robbed, there would have been this uh, kind of a chaotic scene left behind after his body had been taken. There would not have been any care to leave grave clothes laying or to make sure the face cloth placed on the body was folded up. These are keys to the story. A grave robber never would have been intentional about folding these things up. The body would have been taken with its wrappings. They would they would f- focus on burglarizing the tomb first and then dealing with the wrappings on the body of Jesus later. In this case, the wrappings have been left behind, the face cloth has been left and folded, so something else has happened here. It says that when the other disciple came into the grave, he saw the wrappings and believed. Now, the the question facing scholars who've looked at this text uh, in far more depth than I have, and uh, most people do, is that there's this disagreement about what his believing means. Well, what exactly did this other disciple believe? And the, the notion of belief here, though, is nonetheless important, even though scholars disagree about its meaning. Most scholars believe this, that, that John, or the other disciple, believed, but not fully, since we've learned that his belief isn't yet fully formed. In other words, He's in a a progression of belief, not in a binary kind of belief. Either you believe or don't believe. He's rather in a dynamic process of belief. And this helps us understand their response to everything they've seen. They run to the tomb. They come inside. They see the grave cloths there all folded up and everything, you know, neatly taken care of, but no body of Jesus. And so their belief hasn't matured to the point of, of, triggering any kind of change in behavior. So it says, literally, they went home. There are now two male witnesses to the empty tomb, but I want you to take note 
that only Mary Magdalene has borne witness so far. Peter and John arrive, they see the empty tomb, and they leave. It doesn't tell us about how they witnessed to this event to anyone. Only Mary still has done that to this point in the story. That opens up an important key passageway for us that I think it's important for us to focus on, that belief belief is not a switch. It's an evolving reality in us. You see, when we practice kind of a one-and-done framework of Christianity, like we've come to faith in Jesus, so we're good, this fails to appreciate this mystery of an evolving faith. The goal of the gospel is not to bring us to total belief, and then we all just sit around this earthly waiting room until we die to go to heaven. That, that, that's not the case. A, a biblical theology of belief is one in which we're in an ongoing process of belief. Yes, we have moments of breakthroughs and epiphanies, but we're moving through a progression, much like the disciples do in this story. While we have faith in Christ for salvation, we've yet to really even fully understand that completely. So our faith is, it's important to remember that our faith is not in a truth or like a proposition. Our faith is not even in a book. Oftentimes I hear folks describe the Bible as a thing to be believed in. And this is not part of biblical Christianity. Our belief and our faith is grounded in the living Lord Jesus. That is the center of faith and belief. And that's in an ongoing process of maturing throughout our life. The story begins to move toward its conclusion in verses 11 to 18 of John chapter 20. It tells us that as Peter and this other disciple leave to return home, Mary stands alone in this context. Now, we're not sure she was with the two disciples that came to the tomb or if she came afterwards, but her behavior is held in contrast to the two men who went home. The first contrast we've already talked about, as soon as she experienced the empty tomb, she went and immediately became an evangelist or a witness of it. When Peter and John came to the tomb and saw it empty, it says they just went home. So the contrast is already beginning there. But when she's there after Peter and John have left, the text tells us that she peeks into the tomb and she sees two angels, one at the head and the other at the feet of where the body of Jesus would have been. See, what John is telling us in every way and the gospel is telling us is, is that what's happened here is God's work, that this isn't the work of any human grave robber. Rather, this is a, a divine moment. And so she's weeping as she comes into the tomb. And let's remember that this is in the ancient Near Eastern custom of weeping. This is a person who's wailing, screaming. It's quite loud. The beating of her chest. She's in grief. And much the ways you see the lament in uh, Middle Eastern countries depicted today, this is culturally still true even in this episode in John 20. So it's not like she has this kind of modest sort of weeping that's very quiet and demure. No, she's wailing about what's happened. And so the two angels sitting at the head and the foot of where Jesus' body would have been say, woman, why are you weeping? You see, they know something that she does not. They, they know what's happened to Jesus, but she has not. She hasn't quite grasped that. She's herself in that evolution of belief 
as this story begins to unfold. Now, there's no exchange that Mary has with these two angels. They ask a question, and then it says she turns around and she sees a person who she believes is the gardener, we'll learn in a minute. It's actually Jesus. You see, these appearances of Jesus after his resurrection where he's unrecognizable to people, uh, these stories are not unusual. Take, for example, the Emmaus story in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus walks along the road to Emmaus with two disciples, and they don't even know it's Jesus walking with them. Again, that's about that continuum of belief, that evolutionary process of belief where we move from breakthrough to breakthrough to breakthrough. The gardener, she thinks, asks her this question, why are you weeping? Which is the same exact question the angels asked her, but then adds a second part to this question. Whom are you seeking? Notice it's not a what or a thing. It is a who. This is essential to the way John tells the story of Jesus. So rich in relationships and love, this is about the sense of connectedness, the sense of community that people have shared together. So the gardener doesn't ask, you know, uh, what are you seeking or what do you want? He says, whom are you seeking? There's this recognition that she's seeking connection and longing and relationship. Now, the fact that she mistakes him for the gardener is important because there are many scholars who believe that what John is doing when he writes this gospel is he's contrasting this story of the tomb and the garden with a gardener with the Garden of Eden in Genesis. So in the garden where Adam and Eve failed, in this garden, Jesus is victorious. As soon as he says her name, Mary, she recognizes that it's Jesus. Remember, it's in this same gospel that Jesus said he calls his sheep by name. So he says her name. As soon as he says her name, she immediately has her eyes opened and she sees who it is. And she, she uh, says, Rabboni. This is an Aramaic word. And it does not translate well into English. It means teacher, master, guide, leader. There's all sorts of different ways we could translate this word. It's much more encompassing of a word than than we might think of any of those other words that we commonly translate teacher, master, guide, leader. It's all those things plus more. Now, verse 17 in this story is the most problematic verse in John's gospel. It's where Jesus says, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. And then he says, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. This verse is very difficult to translate because it's almost like Jesus doesn't want her holding on to her. And that's not so much the complicated part of the story, but the reasoning here, for I have not yet ascended to my father. So the the idea here is that Jesus is in a liminal kind of space. He's not the same as he was before the crucifixion, but yet who he is is not yet complete because the ascension awaits. It's this in-between time that actually takes place over, we'll learn, 40 days from Jesus' resurrection to his ascension. So Jesus makes it clear that in some ways his work is not yet done. In actuality, it's just beginning. Then he commissions her to go tell the disciples, to tell his brothers 
what's happening. And notice he doesn't tell, tell her to go tell the brothers that he is resurrected. What are the instructions? Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father. The message isn't resurrection. The message is ascension. And she's essentially doing that which Peter and the other disciple did not do. She now moves from being an evangelist of an empty tomb, wondering who stole Jesus' body, to now being a commissioned evangelist by Jesus. And she did exactly what Jesus had told her to do. She went to the disciples and said, I have seen the Lord. And all these things had happened to her. The key passageway here is significant. That believing is seeing. That faith brings assent. Not always the other way around. Sometimes this notion of reaching out and longing to encounter this Jesus is what actually opens our eyes rather than having our eyes opened and then we'll choose to believe. Mary does not know she's talking to Jesus in this garden until he names her. She's searching for a who but cannot locate him. So once she transitions to a belief in his resurrection, in other words, his body hasn't been stolen but he's resurrected, then she sees him, and then she knows him. Often we want in our lives evidence first to believe that God will work. Once we believe, though, that's when we actually see the evidence. It's the other way around. Such an important truth for us to hold on to, this notion of faith and belief as an evolving process for us and a way in which we can hold the truth and reality of who God is in the confidence of knowing that God will reveal purposes and calling and great things to us as we hold on to our faith in him. If you have comments and reflections, I would love to hear from you. Please visit my website, revcraig.com. Click on News in the upper right-hand corner. You'll see a drop-down menu, select Podcast, and then click on this week's episode, and then leave a comment. I'd also encourage you to visit our church's website, ffmc.org, firstfreemethodistchurch.org, to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening. For those of you listening during Holy Week, I pray that you have a blessed Holy Week as we walk with Jesus to the Last Supper, to the Garden of Gethsemane, to the Cross of Calvary, and ultimately to Resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. Happy Easter. Christ is risen. We'll see you next time.